please remain standing as we read from God's Word. My name is Pat Husky, and it's my privilege to serve the women here at FBC as Director of Women's Ministry. We're going to be reading this morning from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Be seated. Thank you. Hey, good morning. Look at that. We're in Luke 24. When we first started working our way through the book of Luke, it seems like Luke was still alive. It's been that long. If you just can't get enough of it, it's still on the radio, so you can listen to Luke all year. We got lots of Luke, but we're almost done. A couple more weeks in the book of Luke, and uh, this is the last chapter, Luke 24, one of my favorite parts of this uh, book, and uh, so let me ask God for his help as we take uh, time to look at his word this morning. We'll jump into Luke uh, 24. God, we thank you for these moments you have granted us today to be in your word together, and we pray that you would um, allow us to have our hearts in the right place. Help us, God, to be willing to allow you to convict us of sin in our life, to, um, to grow in us the uh, form of Christ in us, that you would allow us to let go of things uh, that are opposed to your ways in your kingdom, and instead, God, grasp tightly by faith to those things which glorify your name. And so we pray, God, today that you would make our time in your word this morning fruitful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're in Luke 24, 1 through 12. Over the last several weeks, including Good Friday and Easter, we've looked at a number of things related to these uh, uh, days uh, in Christ's life. Uh, you know, Good Friday, uh, we tend to intentionally think about the crucifixion of Christ, Christ on the cross, paying the the cost and the penalty of our sin through his uh, mistreatment and his brokenness as well as his death on the cross. And when we think of the tomb, as we spent some time talking about the tomb last week, we know that Jesus was dead and buried and he took with him the curse into the tomb. And then we think about the empty tomb. As we're going to spend some time today, we might wonder what's the significance of the empty tomb? Because resurrection, obviously, by putting our faith in Christ, we participate with him in his resurrection, so we have new life. So what's the use of the, of the empty tomb? What we discover at the empty tomb is the glory of Christ's grace. And today as we look at an empty tomb, uh, along with uh, Peter and these women, I want us to be astounded at God's grace uh, at 
the grave. And here's, here's where I want you, how I want you to think about it. I don't know if you have ever been a parent or been a parent of a, a two-year-old. Two-year-olds in particular, we have a nickname for them, the terrific twos. <laughs> Uh, terrifically terrible, the terrible twos. Because at that age, uh, children are just starting to come to the realization that the entire planet doesn't exist for them. That maybe, in fact, there are people on the planet that have different interests than them, namely their parents. And so, from time to time, children who are young will have what we, we call them tantrums, right? And, and, the, and the best place for a tantrum is in the aisle of the grocery store. It's absolutely the best place for a tantrum to occur. It's so, it's thrilling. You just, not only do you get to participate with the tantrum as a parent, but everybody does. We all get to share in the joy. There's a number of ways to approach the tantrum. Let me just throw some ideas out there. I'm not a parent. People have uh, not asked me to write a parenting book. In fact, people have intentionally come up to me and said, would you please never write a parenting book? I said, yeah, that, no, I can accommodate that request. A couple of ways. You can, you can ignore the child. This is a, you can pretend they're not having a tantrum. Uh, and you can take this to extremes. Uh, you know, you could, the child is splayed out on the aisle of the grocery store and the parent walks away. You know, they're two aisles over and you say, your child is crying. Yeah, that's why I'm in this aisle. They're going <laughs> to, they'll get it. This, this technique in modern times is, is, but you can ignore the child hoping at some point they realize their tantrum uh, isn't benefiting them, but children learn to this. They learn to do what I call the tantrum pause. They're freaking out. You ignore them. You move away. They pause the tantrum, become totally regulated, walk over to where you are, drop on the and immediately they're able to pick up right where they left off. And at that point, you just have to you say, that's well played. Well done. <laughs> uh, another way to do this is you just you walk away from your shopping cart, go to the car. You just say, full shopping cart, doesn't matter what it is, we're done, I'll shop another time. Uh, you know, and so you pick up the kid and uh, you take them to the car. You then uh, gently put them on your shoulder and you stroke their hair. Everybody thinks you're lovingly embracing your child, but you're whispering threats under your breath into their, <laughs> when we get to the car, you will, never, you will never see TV again. TV doesn't exist for you. Gently, and oh, what a loving parent. And then, um, let me give you a technique that no one has ever tried. What you ought to do when your child is or grandchild is having a tantrum, what you ought to do is in advance draft a college level research paper on the negative effects of tantrum in the life of toddler. Make sure it's properly researched and properly cited. And then when the child starts the tantrum, begin reading about the negative effects of the tantrum on their life. Say, listen, you're not having fun. This isn't improving your life. It's actually making our time in the store longer. If you weren't having the tantrum, we'd already be done. And so certainly if you were to read a college level research project to a child having a tantrum, they would immediately say, well, you know, mom, dad, I had never thought through these topics in the manner in which you presented them so astutely. I will now refrain from the tantrum. Let's carry on with our shopping. But they would never do that. And then nobody would ever do that. And the reason is, is because on some level, you want to connect with the child where they are and what they can understand. And you know that over the course of time, it's going to take a long time for them to learn proper behavior in social context. And so you know this. You're going to have to interact this child in a language they can appreciate, which they can understand, which they can hear. I know it's going to be hard for them, and they may not understand it all the time, but the communication to the, has to be on their level. What we discover about the open tomb is this is God talking to us at our level. And he comes to us in a way that we can pick up. And then not only that, he comes to us over and over and over again, knowing that this idea of resurrection is hard to get. 
This is not an easy thing for anybody to understand. And that's why the empty tomb, we have such a tremendous uh, view of the grace of God. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 of God's grace at the grave. And the first thing we want to mention is what we just did. His, uh, he shows us the empty uh, tomb. Why is the empty tomb so important? Because it is a symbol of the way in which God is seeking to relate to us in our brokenness as sinners. The empty tomb communicates to us the way in which God has sought to relate to us as sinners. There's a number of ways two conflicting parties can relate to each other. If you think of countries, uh, if two countries are opposed to one another, the first way they can relate to each other is through war. So they will fight a war and whoever is able to endure the cost of war the longest will be declared the victor. And so the other party is forced by losing the war or being unable to afford the conflict to accommodate the wishes of the victor. So that's one way that uh, two parties in conflict can come to terms. Another way to avoid war is diplomacy. And that's where two people come together and they have conflicting interests, but they find other interests that are shared and they try to come up with so many shared interests that they're willing to disregard their conflicting interests. And so they come to terms. We, we don't like each other, but there's enough things about us that are similar. We're going to put up with hating each other for a while until those shared interests are no longer good. The last way, the empty tomb shows us God doesn't do either of these, although he could have. Although he could have come to us and fought a war and destroyed us. Although he could have come to us and come up with some sort of agreement with us. But he does neither of those. The final way is when one party is able to persuade the other party to voluntarily, of their own volition and choice, choose to go the way of the other one. This was God does with the open tomb. He says, I want you to look at what I'm doing and be moved in your inner person to voluntarily choose to set aside your way and go my way. And this is God's grace because he doesn't have to do this. He says, I want to convince you to set aside your way and follow my way because my way is better and to choose to do that, to be persuaded to do that. And here's a couple of things I want you to, to realize about the empty tomb. Number one, Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away. We did. So you realize that stone was not in his way. He didn't like wake up from the dead. He didn't rise from the dead and go, well, now what am I going to do? I'm stuck in a tomb. It wasn't a, that wasn't a problem. Because as you can see, after the resurrection, he was routinely sort of showing up places instantly. So the stone did not need to be rolled away for Jesus to come out. So why was the stone rolled away? So we could look in. That was the point. He wanted us to look in to the tomb. That Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away. We did. Secondly, the angels weren't there to help Jesus get out the tomb. The angels were there to help people coming to the tomb understand what was going on. So everything about the empty tomb is designed to help us see at our level what is happening here. God knows the resurrection is hard to believe even if the tomb is empty. And he's going over and above doing whatever he can to show us Jesus is raised and he can be the hope of our life. Verses 1 through 3. On the first day of the week, of course that's Sunday... At early dawn, they, this is the women, went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. We talked about this at length last week. 
if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to last week's message. So they're going to put the spices on the body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, which of course is not terribly surprising. As they're going to the tomb, they're obviously wondering how are they going to roll the stone away. The stone needs to be rolled away. There were guards there. Certainly the guards probably would have helped them in rolling the stone away because it would have been customary for spices to be applied. The guards wouldn't have been concerned about the stone being rolled away. The guards would have been very careful to make sure the body stayed in the tomb. That was their job. They would have rolled the stone back and resealed it. When the women arrived and the stone was rolled away, in some ways that, that wasn't really surprising. It would have been very likely that the guards would have known that somebody was coming to applied spices and if they were guards that were astute at all, they would have said, let's get the t stone rolled away so they can get in, do their job, get back, and we can get back to playing pinochle or whatever they were doing. So they weren't surprised when they got to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. That wasn't that, yeah, somebody was preparing so we could come to get through. What was surprising to them is when they went into the tomb and there was no body there. That's what suddenly uh, got their attention. The stone was moved away fine, but when they got in, the body not being there was unexpected to them. They expected to find a dead body that required attention to keep it from smelling. Verse 3, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, which of course tells us they were expecting to find the body of the Lord Jesus, which means, as we talked about last week a little bit, they weren't necessarily expecting Jesus to raise from the dead. This isn't something that was front of mind for them, even though it ought to have been. This is something Jesus had predicted over and over and again. Verse 4, while they were perplexed, about this. I'm sure the women were standing in the tomb. Aren't you perplexed? I'm very perplexed. They were perplexed. They didn't know what to do with this. They didn't, they, they didn't have a, a, a way of thinking through what was going on. And, and you would have, you, you've been in those situations where information is coming in so quickly you can't organize it and you can't think through it properly. There, is the body gone? Did the guards take it? Did the gardener take it? Did, they're trying to think well, what, could have, what could have happened and nothing would have made any sense to them. The only people that anybody thought was going to move the body, people thought the disciples were going to move the body. And, and these women, of course, were acting on behalf of and for the disciples. So when they got there and the body's not there, they were thinking, well, why is the body gone? We're the ones people think are going to move the body. It would have made no sense for the Romans to move the body. It would have made even less sense for the high priests to move the body. All of those groups want people to know Jesus is dead. So they don't know what to do with this. They're perplexed, wondering what is going on. What, is this, what does this mean? While they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. All of this would be very astonishing. Number one, you're standing in a tomb. A tomb that's supposed to have a body that doesn't have, the bo doesn't have a body. Sounds like the start to a horror movie, right? What's going to... Secondly, you're standing there and all of a sudden two guys in real bright, shiny clothes are there. Just all of a sudden, boom, they're there. This whole thing would have been terribly disorienting. So two men standing in dazzling apparel were there. These, these were obviously angels. Angels came and, and showed up. These are messengers of God. They appeared to them. Why would God send angels to meet women at the tomb? Why would God send angels to uh, 
communicate with these ladies as they're in there preparing to anoint the body. Why? Because God obviously had to send them. Angels don't choose to go anywhere. Angels do what they're told. So God would have told these angels, go to the tomb. What does this mean God knows about these women coming to the tomb? That they don't think Jesus is going to raise from the dead. Now think about it if you were God. Thank thankfully for all of us involved, you're not. But you have, for like all of eternity past, that's what the Bible tells us, been planning for Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And also, for all of eternity, been planning for him to rise from the dead, to bring redemption. And then the people that you have been telling that Jesus is going to rise from the dead for, for three years, not the least of which Jesus has raised people from the dead in the view of these people. And so Jesus is doing all of this. And then when Jesus does raise from the dead, God already knows they're going to go to a tomb not believing what? That you're going to raise him from the dead. If you were God, what would you do? I mean, I would be frustrated. See, this is where we talk about a toddler. I don't want to call you a toddler. But this is where you really? You're standing in an empty tomb, the tomb I told you would be empty. None of this is new information. How is it you think he's still dead? So God knew in advance that they weren't going to get it. He knew in advance this was going to be hard. And he sent some angels to these women that they might be told, listen, this is, this is happening. This is, this is going on. God knew we wouldn't get it right away. God knows how difficult it is to trust him in light of everything that we deal with in our brokenness. Grace is this from God. Grace is this. He doesn't have to make it easier for us. He doesn't have to do that. Great. One of the things that's so great about God is he does the things he doesn't have to do. He continues to come over and over and over again and to draw us to him by saying, no, Jesus is risen. And that's what he does for these women. He wants them to believe. He wants us to reach out to him for help. He wants to do everything he can to connect the dots for us that we might trust him that Jesus is risen from the dead. Let's look at what the angels say. Verse 5. And as they were frightened, which is normal. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? They weren't being cute. They weren't being funny. It sounds like they're making a joke. Why are you looking for a, a, a live man in, in a tomb? They are saying that. But what's more interesting about this is this is almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 8. So I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. It's really, really interesting the connection these angels make for us from the prophet Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 8:16. Looks like it's up on the screen for us. How handy is that? Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Verse 17. I will wait for the Lord. Well, hold on to that thought for a minute as we read through this. We'll come back to it. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who, excuse me, who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, 
Should not people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So God here is is being serious about what it means to inquire of him, to seek him, to know him and understand him. What would happen is, in, in, the old, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were constantly worshiping false gods. And one of the reasons they would worship false gods is they would answer prayer faster than God would. A good example of this is King Saul. King Saul was constantly praying to God, and God wouldn't answer him, mostly because God told him, I'm not going to answer you. Saul was a little slow. So finally he goes and meets the Ewoks of Endor. I mean, the, the witch of Endor. And this is why Ewoks are terrible. They're from Endor. He goes to meet the witch of Endor, and when he meets with her, he has her call up Samuel from the dead. Right? And, that, and Samuel comes from the dead and talks to the lady, and the lady talks to Paul. And this was completely forbidden. You were not to seek counsel from the dead through a mediums and necromancers. You were to seek your counsel from the Lord himself. What's the problem with God? We pray to God and he answers when? When he wants, which is rarely, rarely when we want. And so what the people of Israel would do is, well, if God's not going to answer the phone, I will call literally anyone who will. And so they would seek through false gods, which really were empowered by demonic forces, answers to their questions, and they would receive answers. And, and what the prophet Isaiah is saying is, look, back to verse 17, I will wait for the Lord. I would rather pray to the Lord and have to wait for him to answer than to seek answers from someone other than the Lord, even if they do answer. And that's what he says at the end of verse 17. I will hope in him. And so that's why the, the Bible in Isaiah is saying God is serious. We have a need. We have a need to have a relationship with the Lord. And the people should inquire of God and should not inquire of the dead on behalf of the living. Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's what the angel is saying. There is no hope in the grave, he is saying to the women. There's no hope in this grave. What you need is a living Savior. Jesus is alive. Let me put it this way, if we can really understand what the angels are saying. To doubt the resurrection is akin to seeking guidance through a medium. He is saying, no, this is serious business. To trust the Lord is to recognize Jesus is alive. To pray to Christ the living Savior is not the same as seeking a medium. Jesus is alive. These other false things are dead things. And to doubt the resurrection of Christ is similar to going to a medium for answers. And the angels are saying, don't seek the living among the dead. Instead, seek the living. You have a risen Savior. So even though doubting the resurrection of Christ is so serious, what is God and the angels seeking to do? Seeking to convince and show these women Jesus is alive. He is alive, so seek him. Seek Jesus because he is living. Let's go back to Luke. Luke chapter 24, I think we're down to verse 6. You say, look, this is taking forever. That's why we've been in Luke for a year and a half. <laughs> You'll be all right. Verses 6 and 7. 
the angels continue. He is not here. He has risen. So we know he's not here. We're looking in the tomb. This is not new information. The new information is why he's not here. So he is not here. Obviously, the body is gone. But they're saying he is not here. And the reason he is not here is he is risen from the dead. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And of course, this occurred a couple of times in the book of Luke, and I'm just going to read Luke 9.22. Jesus says this, Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Is there any questions to what that means? It's not complicated. He isn't, this isn't some kind of hidden meaning thing. I will be delivered over sinful men. The religious leaders will kill me. On the third day, I will rise. What is Sunday? First day of the week. Third day. Crucified on Friday. Still in the grave on Saturday. Raised on Sunday. It shouldn't have been a mystery for anyone. And what the angels are telling the women is, he said this would happen. And precisely what he said would happen is what did happen. Believe Jesus. He said he would die. He said he would rise. Jesus has done precisely what he said he would do. Trust him. Because he is among the living, trust him for your life. The angels know it's hard. God knows it's hard. So it's by his grace that he gave the women the open tomb. It's by his grace he provided more and more information and more and more help that us in, the, in our thick skulls, hard-headedness, stubborn hearts, that we, we just want to resist this notion, he just continues to draw us in because he wants us to be persuaded. He wants our hearts moved to reach out to this Savior who saves sinners and the open tomb shows us his grace. God knows it's difficult to believe, and he's willing to be patient with us. So let's look at the next part of this in verses uh, 8 to the end of the section, 8 through 12. God's grace at the grave. Firstly, he shows us the empty tomb. Secondly, he lets us struggle through disbelief and doubt. God's grace at the grave. He lets us struggle through disbelief and doubt. Back to toddlers. Let's just keep focusing on toddlers. I don't know if you've ever walked anywhere with a toddler. Um, you know, so you're holding their hand, number one, you got to kind of hunch over. And, uh, and their legs, it turns out, are shorter. I'm not a physicist or a scientist, but this is the best way I can summarize toddlers. They got pretty good high RPM, but low top speed. <laughs> they, their legs will move fast, and, and, and it looks like they're jogging, and you're kind of sauntering, and, and, and so it takes a while to get anywhere. And then not only that, there's no straight line to anything because everything a toddler sees is the first time they've ever seen anything. And they want to look at it. And they want to examine it. Some of those things are gross. Look, gum on the ground. No, don't eat it. <laughs> and so everything. And so pretty soon, if you want to get anywhere the toddler, a walk turns into a ride. Right? So you're picking up. We're going. You pick them up. And then you might be dealing with uh, a, t a tantrum. And so uh, this is what it is. And so if you're going to walk somewhere with a toddler, you need to have patience. You need to be willing to wait. You need to be willing to just go at their speed. This is what we discover about God at the open tomb. Is he's willing to go at our speed. 
to give us the time that is needed for us to struggle through disbelief and doubt. God doesn't get tired with us and impatient with us. And this is what's difficult about relating to God, is we tend to assume God relates to us the way we relate with others around us. Because we do get, what, tired and, and impatient and irritable and wonder why people aren't getting it quick enough. And, and, and especially when, when people around us are behaving poorly and it's, it makes our life stressful, we assume God is going to react to us the same way, but he doesn't. God shows no impatience or frustration with the people at this empty tomb. For how long it takes to trust Jesus. God, in fact, is patiently drawing us over time to trust the risen Savior. Look at verses 8 and 9. Excuse me. Hold on. Sorry. I'm a... Uh, I have allergies. Do you guys get allergies this time of year? I don't have allergies to trees and stuff. I have, I have, I'm allergic to work. <laughs> And it makes me, makes me tired and irritable. And uh, so I try not to do that. Um, verses 8 and 9. The women remembered his words, that is Jesus' words from the angels. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. So there's a bunch of people gathered. They returned to where the eleven were. Obviously, eleven, uh, uh, Judas, as we find out in the book of Acts, has taken his own life. And returned from the tomb and found the disciples and the others who were with them. And they told all these things to them. So the first thing we need to make note of about Christ's resurrection is God provides us what we need over time, patiently and kindly, provides us what we need to trust him in his resurrection. And then what he does is he sets us on mission. He draws us in to see Jesus is raised. But notice the angels don't go to where the 11 are. Who goes? The women go back to the 11 and they say, here's what we saw. Here's who we talked to. The plan has always been for the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, for the truth of the resurrection to be a the power of testimony. People having seen the risen Christ tell others what they have witnessed. The angels didn't go. Of course, the women, after they talked to the angels, the women didn't say, hey, will you go with us to talk to Peter, James, and John? Have you met these guys? Because they're not going to get it from us, right? But they didn't. The, the angels didn't go. The women went, and their testimony was very, very simple. What was their testimony? Went to the tomb, it's empty, Jesus is raised. Not complicated. Here's what I saw. Here, here's, what, here's what happened. I went to the tomb and it was empty. We talked to the angels and Jesus is raised from the dead. That's how testimony works. Testimony is saying, here's what I have seen God do. And this is what's fantastic about testimony is people can't argue testimony. You can tell somebody all day long what God has done in your own heart and in your own life. And there's no arguing it. Listen, I have seen the risen Savior because he changed my life. I used to be this way, and now I am this way. And God has made a change in my life, and so I testify there is a risen Savior. And somebody can argue with all, you all day long about what the Bible means and how long it's been around and... And all kinds of stuff like that. But the, at the end of the day, the question, if, if Jesus changes your heart, you have a testimony. And you can share with somebody, I have seen the risen Savior. As you would expect, the disciples are a little bit slow. 
verse 11. The women shared these things with the, the apostles. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they what? They did not believe them. That's rude. It's terribly rude. First of all, this idle tale, it's... Uh, what they're talking about here is the way someone talks when they're experiencing a high fever, a delirium, or when somebody gets a good whack on the head. Uh, maybe the best thing we can equate this to, this idle tale that they were experiencing. Nowadays, one of the most uh, fun things to watch is you can watch on, the, on YouTube videos of people who have been videoed after coming out of general anesthesia, generally after going to the dentist. And they, they act kooky. My favorite one is this guy. He's, he's got to be in his mid-20s. And he's, he's coming out and he's sitting in this chair in the recovery room. And he's obviously a little kooky. And he, he says, man, this is a really, really comfortable chair. And the person filming him, as you would discover in a few minutes, is his dad. And he goes, yeah, your mom and I bought a chair just like that. And he goes, I have a chair? And he's so excited. I can't believe I, I have a chair. He said, yeah, yeah, your mom and I bought it. You a chair. I have a mom? And he's, and he's so excited. He said, well, yeah, who do you think I am? He said, I don't know who you are. I said, I'm your dad. My dad. He gives him his big hug, and he's so excited. It's the first time he's ever met his dad, as far as he could tell. And, and now his dad's on to him. He said, yeah, yeah, you've got a, you've got a dog, dude. You've got a big dog. And, and the guy's, oh, my God. I love big dogs. I love big dogs so much. He said, yeah, guess what your dog's name is? See, you're Googling right now. You've got to see this video. Go, what's my dog? What's the dog's name? He said, your dog's name is Bane. He, like from Batman? <laughs> and, and, and the guy finally he lays back in this chair and he goes, I, I have a perfect life. <laughs> That's what he said. He lays down. He's like, I have a perfect life. And you know, sort of, as you watch the video, you sort of wish you could stay in that state. Because you know, at some point, the, the anesthesia is going to wear off and he's going to realize, like the rest of us, life is life. But, but that guy is what the, the, the disciples think the women are acting like. Like they're just coming out of anesthesia. Like they, they don't get it. They're, they're in a delirium. But nobody, and so nobody here is believing the words that Jesus has, has actually said. So think about some of the people that, that the women are talking to here. Namely, Peter. Peter's had a rough weekend, hasn't he? Just cut a guy's ear off. He's denied Jesus three times. And Jesus looked directly at him after he had denied Jesus three times. And then he went out and wept. So here's what I would ask you to think about, about this moment right here. Which is worse? That Peter denied Jesus three times, or that Peter refuses to believe Jesus was going to rise from the dead? What, what's worse? I mean, here he is. Jesus is risen. Yeah, at this point, Jesus is risen. The women come and say, he is risen. And they essentially say, you must have hit your head in that tomb. You didn't stoop down. You must have knocked your noggin a little bit. And now you're seeing things. And, and, and the disciples here commit this significant offense of disbelieving that Jesus is raised, even though Jesus has already said he would raise. So how do you think Jesus is going to respond to these disbelieving disciples? Certainly he's going to fly off into a rage. Certainly he's going to, to smite them. Certainly he is going to come in in a tornado of fire and destroy the building they're in and and that's what we assume God is like when we struggle with our doubt and disbelief.
We struggle with doubt and disbelief. We, we assume God is just sitting in his corner in heaven, waiting for us to doubt a little bit so he can ruin our stock market holdings. So he can give us that disease we're worried about getting. So he can make us fire. Oh, this, all this bad stuff happened because I doubted God for five minutes and he is just hunting for an opportunity to smack me upside the head with my doubt. But we have to look at the grave and say, I don't know that that's how God is working here. Because he has left the grave. He has communicated that he was raised from the dead before he died. He's communicated that he's raised from the dead by these angels. And God continues to work over and over and over again for, through all of the, book of the rest of the book of Luke, convincing people, I am raised from the dead. God's grace at the grave. He lets us struggle through our doubt and our disbelief. And he, he meets us in that place and seeks to continue to draw us to him through faith. Verse 12, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping in. Now, generally, those doorways on those tombs are a little bit smaller. He said, well, why don't they make it full-sized? Have you ever chiseled a rock tomb? You make the door as small as possible. Peter rose and ran in, stooping in, and he looked, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter went in to see, and this is good. Here's Peter struggling with his doubt, and he's not done struggling with his doubt yet. He's going to go fishing still. He's struggling with his doubt, wondering, is this really happening? Peter wants to believe, but, but he's, he's having a hard time with it. And so he goes to see. He wants to get more information. He wants to understand what's going on. So he, he runs to the tomb and, and he begins to have his heart moved by God. He marvels at what is going on. In fact, we would say Peter wants to believe, but he wants to believe based on the facts. He wants to know what's really going on. And this takes time. It's difficult. Not only that, but faith isn't always constant. Have you noticed that in your own life with Christ? Have you noticed some days you believe like nobody's business? And then other days, it, it's hard? It's because we're weak and we're broken and we're not home yet. And Peter is struggling through this same thing. And it's by God's grace that he gave us the empty tomb that we could go in and look and, and have him continue to work on our hearts. Maybe we would say it this way. Jesus lets us work through the difficulty of trusting him. And he does not judge us for that struggle. This whole narrative is designed to allow individuals who struggle to believe to recognize God is with us in that struggle, doing everything he can to meet us where we are to draw, him to, draw us to himself in faith. God's grace at the grave. He shows us the empty tomb and he lets us struggle through disbelief. A couple of things that we'll close with. Uh, first thing, here we go. Jesus wants us to take full advantage of what he did to save sinners. He wants us to take full advantage of what he's done for us. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. He wants us to trust him fully. He wants us to uh, go all in for what he is doing to save sinners and to redeem our life. He is not trying to trick us. He is trying to draw us in that we might believe, that we might trust him and put our faith in him. This is to say God is not as impatient with us as we are with ourselves and as we are with 
one another. I would even say this. God is pleased to take whatever time is needed to help us trust him more. God is pleased over the course of our life to take whatever time is needed to help us to trust him more. That should be good news for some of us. Some of us grow kind of slow. And I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about the people in the first service. <laughs> That's you guys. Um, we get discouraged because we think we should be stronger than we are. We get discouraged because we think we should be further along. And we think God therefore must be terribly disappointed. We, God must simply be putting up with us to some degree. The open tomb, the, the tomb where God shows us his grace, he's telling us, I will do whatever it takes to draw you along to me as long as it takes. He is in for the long game. There are some things God, by his grace, is going to help you with right away in your life. And there are some things in your life you're going you're gonna to struggle with until the day you go home. And the question is, are we going to allow his grace to convince us he's that kind? That he really is willing to work with us over the course of our, of our entire life. However long it takes, however much effort he needs to put in, he is going to do for us. He wants to work out his salvation into the, the nooks and crannies of our life, even though that's going to take our whole life. And of course, life is long, and so things change over time. The things we struggled with when we were in our 20s are not the things we struggle with when we're in our 70s. And God is willing to continue to work with us patiently over time. This is what we discover at the open tomb. Jesus wants us to take full advantage of his patience. The only one who is impatient with our progress in the Lord is Satan. He wants to spend his entire life convincing you you don't measure up. And you've blown it. And God doesn't like you that much. And if he didn't promise to take you to heaven because Jesus died for you, he probably wouldn't. But that's not what the open tomb tells us. And those angels tell us. It tells us Jesus is in it for our whole life and he is patient with us. Now, somebody else is going to uh, wonder, well, why faith? Why do we have to trust God? Why can't he make it so we don't have to trust him? He can just fix it so we don't have to struggle with our faith. Why, why faith? Why believe? Why is it that we have to trust God when it's, when it's difficult? And the reason is very, very simple. We were made, we were designed by God, made in his image to have our entire existence depend on him. That's how we were made. The, the way God designed us was to live our entire lives in the joy of depending on him. He provides everything we need, including relationship with him and the world to live in. It is good for us to depend on God, to trust God. But in the garden, Adam and Eve said, you know what, better than having to, to depend on God is if we could have life without God. If we could be like God in knowledge, therefore we wouldn't need him. That sounds appealing. It's not need anybody, but that's not how we were made. And so what Jesus does is provide us the means to enter back into right relationship with God, where we depend on him. We trust him. So trusting Jesus is the undoing of Adam's sin and our own sin. In fact, I might suggest that trusting Jesus is rebellious. Trusting Jesus is rebellion against the world today as we know it. Trusting Jesus the says to this world, the world which says what matters most is what I want and being independent and autonomous. Trusting Jesus, it says, no, what's important is what Christ wants and depending on him. 
and being a part of what he is doing. Trusting Jesus is to intentionally desire to have a life that requires God to show up. Trusting Jesus is, is thinking about my moments and my days in Christ and say, what does it look like to have a life where if God doesn't show up, I'm sunk because I can always trust God. Finally this, God's grace at the grave. We get worried when there are people in our life who struggle with their faith. Do you know anybody in your life who struggles with their faith besides you? I mean, I know you do, but at church we have to pretend like we don't, and that's fine. We're good at that. But don't you get worried? Don't you get stressed out about that sometimes? I mean, I do. I mean, that's what we do, is we get stressed out. I want them to, to know the life that God has to offer, and it stresses me out, and I get worried about people. What if, here's the thing, God's not worried. God knows what he's doing. We get worried when people around us struggle with faith. What can we do? We can love people the way Jesus has loved us when we struggle with our faith. We can pray for people. We can encourage people. We can let people know that we want to have a relationship with them regardless. That we love them the way God has loved us. And, and to also recognize that struggling with our faith in the Lord is a part of living with the Lord. And you say, well, I'm not struggling with my faith in the Lord. Well, wait 10 years. There might be something coming up that is going to be a real challenge for you. And what we can do for one another is give each other room to go through that struggle, to continue to love and care. A part of living a life in Christ is to have a sense of spiritual humility. To recognize that every moment in my life I trust on God to hold me close, not me to hold him close. In fact, we might say the place we are right now that we might evaluate our relationship with God is a testimony of God's grace and faithfulness, not our faithfulness to God. So God's grace at the grave for us should give us the ability to give grace to others, to give them room to struggle, to give them room to question, and to be willing to stay in close relationship in love and grace with one another. God's grace at the grave. He shows us his empty tomb, and he lets us struggle through disbelief. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the joy of knowing you, and we thank you for your grace in our lives. God, we are grateful that you meet us where we are, that you are willing to do whatever it takes, not um, hold us at arm length, but instead, God, you continue over and over again in the course of our life, seek to make known to us the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that you aren't impatient with us, but you are willing to continue to draw us closer to you when our faith is weak and we struggle. We struggle with sin. We struggle with doubt. We, we worry and wonder. And we are grateful, God, that our relationship with you is dependent not on our faithfulness to you, but your faithfulness to us. And we are grateful, God, of how hard you have worked to make yourself known to us. God, we pray that we would learn to live our life in you as a life of faith, not a life of trying to learn how we can have a, have a situation where we don't have to trust in you, but instead, Lord, to have a life that is built on having to trust you every single day. And God, many of us know people in our lives who are struggling in their faith. They have questions and doubts. And God, we pray that you would give us peace to know that you know better than anybody else what those individuals need. God, give us the ability to extend love and grace and prayer and compassion 
Give us wisdom when you want to move in our hearts to share words. Give us wisdom, Lord, when you want us to keep our mouth closed. God, we are grateful that you are faithful to finish the work you started in us, and we thank you that your grace saw fit to leave the tomb empty so that we could know Jesus is risen. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's close with a song together. Why don't you stand up with us?